everyone and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How you doing, Ben? I'm doing fine, Sarah. It's the day before Halloween! Ooh. Happy Halloween! Ooh. We're excited. Uh, we've got a great movie to talk about today. We've mm-hmm. got a lot of exciting Patreon content coming out tomorrow, and we're hosting our annual Halloween party tomorrow. And uh, yeah, it's going to be lots gonna of be fun. Lots of fun, exactly. Yeah. The conclusion of Carmilla, the audiobook adaptation I'm doing, comes out tomorrow, so you can learn what happens. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Whoa. And then we have our very special bonus episode on Vera West. That's right. The life the, and death. The mysterious life and mysterious or death of Vera West. <laughs> but that's tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Ben, what are we doing right now? Right now, Sarah, we are talking about Isle of the Dead from 1945, starring Boris Karloff, directed by Mark Robeson, and produced by Val Luton. Dope. I've been pretty excited for this one. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, I think it's a great episode to be doing for our Halloween episode. And uh, yeah, I'm just really excited to get into the spooky swing of things. Yeah, it's not like last year where (laughs) we watched a movie, it turned out to not be a horror movie, so we scrambled and made a double feature. Yeah. (laughs) As we mentioned in our episode on The Body Snatcher... Isle of the Dead was, in fact, the first collaboration between producer Val Luton and actor Boris Karloff. Luton had suffered a string of disappointments at RKO and was in need of a hit, and adding the star power of Karloff to the Luton team seemed like a way out of the slump. Mm -hmm. Karloff, for his part, had returned to cinema after three years on Broadway to work once again for Universal Studios, but found himself growing increasingly tired of Universal's reheated leftovers approach to horror. We can only have so much meatloaf. Moving to RKO and Luton was a decision that Karloff later said restored his soul as an actor. Production on the film began in July of 1944 and shot for two weeks. Initially, the title was Camilla, and the lead female character of the same name was played by Rose Hobarts, who we saw previously in The Soul of a Monster and the 1931 Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The script was written by Ardell Ray, who had previously written I Walked with a Zombie and The Leopard Man for Val Luton, as well as dialogue for his failed docudrama Youth Runs Wild. It, it's a really bad movie. <laughs> now, the story of Camilla was set on a island in Greece and uses a creature from Greek folklore, uh, the pronunciation of which I'm not... I'm going to leave up to you, Sarah. Pronunciation guides were a little contradictory, but I I was able to tell that it's either Vrikolakas or Vrikolakas. Okay. So it's... 
it, it, the question is whether the emphasis is on the ko or the la. But in any case, I'll be saying ricolacas. All right. I was going to say, like, from my end of things, I seem to see it spelled differently every time I looked at it. That is very true. Yes, they do have different spellings, but all of it is, like, the same meaning. Yeah. So what's the deal with the Vrikolakas? What's the deal with the Vrikolakas? <laughs> I also think of Vrikolakas. <laughs> right. A Vrikolaka is a basically a Greek vampire. Okay. Slash werewolf? Yeah, I mean, the further back you go in folklore, the more and more those two things are conflated. Yeah, um, I have previously covered historical Eastern and Central European vampires in episode 10 on Asferatu. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the first time in the show, and for me personally, encountering a Greek version of the vampire myth. Yeah, what's what's really cool about vampires is there's kind of a version of them in every culture. Like there's the Chinese hopping vampires, or there's um, Russian vampires, which, if I remember correctly, don't bite your throat. They bite your chest and suck the blood from your heart directly. Oh, that's metal. I mean, they're Russian <laughs> vampires. Of course, they're going to be a little extra. Well, in the case of Greek vampires... Um, they're not so much bloodsuckers as they are cannibals. Hmm. They are particularly fond of human livers. I mean, you know, you fry it up with some some onion and uh... listen, Hannibal. Let's get let's stay on topic here. Okay. So similar to what we saw with the European vampires and werewolves getting conflated, uh, we see it here with vikolakas. Um, that term coming from two words meaning wolf and strands of hair. So its name is even more related to a werewolf than a an undead creature of the night, as it mm. were. Instead of a werewolf, it's a hairwolf. <laughs> uh, there is an 18th century story by Piton de Tournefort titled Ricolacas, and he uses the word bugbear to describe the creature, hmm. um, which, looking into the description of it, Sounds more like the D&D bugbear, in that there's no relation to bugs nor bears, uh, but rather (laughs) more like a hobgoblin, kind of like, boogie creature of the night. Yeah. A vicolacus is created if someone is not religious enough in real life, they get excommunicated, or not buried in consecrated ground. Those are all kind of vampire causes, too. Exactly, yeah, um... However, if you ate a sheep that was killed by a werewolf, you would then become a vicolacus. <laughs> That's Also, werewolves can become a vampire after being killed, but they maintain kind of like the long wolf-like fangs, hairy palms, and glowing eyes characteristic of werewolves. Okay, so, so a vicolacus is a... Werewolf vampire. Exactly. Gotcha. One thing that's kind of neat with with these Vicolacas is that, the myth goes anyways, that they would knock on someone's door and call out their name for the person to come answer it. Mm-hmm. Uh, which reminds me of that thing in Buffy where, like, you can't enter, the vampires can't enter the house. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty traditional Standard. vampire lore. But um, if 
you like ignored the knock, like the single knock at the door, they would just pass on. They're oh. like, oh, sweet, no one's home. I'll just keep going. But if you answered the door, you're a victim. That inspired a superstition in Greece. You only answer the door on the second knock. Um, now, Ivikolakas can suffocate their victim by sitting on them while they are asleep. I mean, anyone can suffocate their victim by sitting on them while they're asleep, but okay. To destroy Ivikolakas, um, it can only be done on a Saturday. And, you know, kind of traditional thing of staking them through different parts of their body, beheading them, burning them. Um, you know, if you weren't sure if someone would become a Vigolakas in death, uh, people were often buried with large stones over top of them. Mm-hmm. What's interesting to me, and I think is good to note, is that belief in Vigolakas is still fairly common. Mm-hmm. For example, during the 1941 and 42 Great Famine in Greece... Um, so many people were dying that the church graveyards became full. Mm-hmm. And so they had to create mass graves that were off consecrated ground. Mm. So people became worried that their loved ones would turn into Vigalakas. So many of the people who died from the famine were beheaded in death to prevent them from coming back. Wow. And that's in the 40s. Mm-hmm. And because that's in like the forty one forty two Great Famine, I wonder if that's why this idea of the Vikolakas has come up in this forty five film. Yeah, I would be really fascinated to know because the film isn't um, set in the forties. Uh, like the Body Snatcher, it's a period film set during World War One, I, I believe. Oh, interesting. Um, but but it would make sense if that sort of news item was why maybe the idea came to Luton's attention. Although we also know that Val Luton was a very well-read individual. Yeah. So Camilla, as the film was then known, would be Ardell Ray's final script for Val Luton at RKO. Do you know if it was going to be based off the novella by Sheridan Le Fanu? Camilla, not Carmilla. Yeah, but that's close enough. Sure. Um, no, no, no. I think, though... There is something to the idea of, like, having this Greek vampire in it. And, like, so maybe there was some connections in there. Sure. Um, but that was that was never the inspiration. Yeah, so, as I was saying, Camilla would be the final script that Ardell Ray would write for Val Luton at RKO. In 1948, she was commissioned by Luton, newly moved to Paramount, to write a script for a film he was developing called A Mask for Lucrezia, about Lucrezia Borgia. However, shortly before the film was to go into production, she was called into a meeting with some studio executives and handed a list and told to point to the communists on the list. Yikes. She declined to do so. In a matter of days, she was taken off a mask for Lucrezia, which soon lost Luton as well, who was replaced by future James Bond screenwriter Richard Mabum. The film was ultimately released in 1949 after a complete rewrite to the script by future Forbidden Planet writer Cyril Hume. Ardell Ray's agent severed ties with her, her mother publicly questioned her loyalty to the United States, and her husband, who was a GI, divorced her. For Ray's part, she didn't really know anyone who she would call communist sympathizers, 
save for Dalton Trumbo, who she had dated way back in the 1930s and whose sympathies were already known. And she didn't want to ruin anyone's life and career just by pointing arbitrarily on a list just to get herself out of hot water. Good for her. Ray would not write again until 1960, when she returned to work on television. Failing eyesight would force her retirement in 1972, and she passed away from breast cancer in 1983 at the age of 75. The film's director is Mark Robeson, who had edited Luton's first four films before being raised to the position of director for The Seventh Victim. Uh, He also directed The Ghost Ship, Youth Runs Wild, and now this film. Cinematography is by Jack McKenzie, uh, who is new to the Luton team. He had been working as a cinematographer since 1916 and would continue to do so until 1969. Now, <laughs> nice. Now while we <laughs> Now while he hasn't worked with Val Luton before, we have seen his work before because he shot Jungle Woman. Oh, well, shooting on the film was disrupted when Karloff went into surgery for chronic arthritis in his spine. Production was halted while Karloff recovered. When Karloff was ready to return to work, however, most of the cast were busy on other projects. So Karloff and Luton made The Body Snatcher in the meantime, which shot from October 25th to November 17th, 1944. Following this, shooting resumed on Camilla but with a very big change. It wasn't called that anymore, and the character of Camilla was no longer in the film. Oh, no. Rose Hobart had departed the production, and so Val Luton and writer Joseph Michel, who had written Mademoiselle Fifi for Luton, rewrote the screenplay to remove the character. They chose to go uncredited on this rewrite, uh, but it was at this time that the film was retitled Isle of the Dead, named after the paintings that had originally inspired the film. These paintings are pretty significant Mm -hmm. um, in the life of the creator, Arnold Bocklin. Arnold Bocklin was born in Basel, Switzerland, in 1827. In his 20s, he would study at the Dusseldorf Academy of Art under Johann Wilhelm Schirmer, He and his classmates are kind of grouped together and known as the Dusseldorf School of Painting, which is just like a way academics like to group certain people by calling them a school, like the Frankfurt School. It's like that wasn't necessarily a school. It was just a group of people who knew each other at school. Yeah, it's it's the way that Redditors like to complain about animation having CalArt style. Yeah, sure. Okay. So this group is known for detailed landscapes with allegorical stories depicted. Notably, uh, this group was influenced by the German Romantic movement. Mm -hmm. Now, I discussed romanticism in our episode on Frankenstein, uh, like number 26. But that was more for, like, the literature side of romanticism. As far as visual arts go, and especially in Germany's romanticism, the artist Philipp Otto Rung is the big name here. Okay. So Rung used colors to symbolize the Holy Trinity. He actually developed the concept of the color sphere. Oh, shit. And he was using color to emphasize the landscape and that romantic 
and this is capital R romantic of like just being overwhelmed by the landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, he used color to kind of contrast what you're seeing here to kind of depict light versus darkness um, and really create uh, visceral emotional responses to it. Yeah, whenever I think of capital R romantic art, I think of that painting Wanderer Above a Sea of Fog. Yeah, so that is, I believe, if memory serves, that is a German painting. It's not by this guy. Okay. Um, But if you look up Philip Otto Rung, um, he uses stark contrast Mm. um, to really emphasize what is striking about a landscape. Okay. Now with Bachlin... He's influenced by the Romantics, not necessarily part of the Romantic movement. Yeah, I think the time he would have been working is sort of... After. Yeah. People kind of describe him more as a symbolist, which is not a useful descriptor (laughs) for artists at all. Um, But they, they call him a symbolist with mythological subjects. Okay. Because he would like to bring in myth mythology, notably Greek and Roman, into his works. Um, This is likely because he lived in Rome in 1850, which was right when he was really getting his footing as a professional painter. Okay. And this is also when he would marry Italian Angela Rosa Lorenza Pascucci in 1853. They would end up having 14 children. Okay. uh, With only six living to adulthood, unfortunately. I mean, yeah, that's, that's the ratio back then. Yep. His earliest piece is known as The Great Park, which was painted in around the 1850s. And so I think because he's in Rome, he's clearly in love with the culture, and he returns to Italy many times throughout his life, it's not surprising that Greek mythology would find its way into his work. Sure. In 1880, Bachlin produced the first version of the Isle of the Dead paintings, Um, But he would ultimately produce an additional five versions until his death in 1901. Mm -hmm. So the first version is commonly just called, like, the Basil version, uh, named after, like, where he was born. Sure. Um, And it depicts an island of cliffs with tall, dark cypress trees in the middle. There's white Greek-like architectured buildings among the cliffs. There's a boat arriving to the island with a white figure standing on it, and there's a coffin behind this figure. Mm. So Bachlin described this painting as, quote, a dream picture. It must produce such a stillness that one would be awed by a knock at the door, end quote. Which I think the painting does succeed at because it has this very calm, serene waters around this melancholic island. And you can also see that that Greek mythology thing, like, pretty easily in that with the idea of, like, um, Charon, the the ferryman of the river Styx, who ferries you to Hades. Yeah, and cypress trees being yes. very, um, not only associated with, like, graveyards in Greece, but um, being associated with Greece in general. Right, exactly. The first three versions of Isle of the Dead were painted in the English cemetery in Florence, which was close to his studio and where one of his children, the infant daughter Maria, was buried. Okay. There are also a few islands kind of people have pointed to as possibly inspiring the look of the island in the painting. Um, there's an island called Ponte Conisi near Corfu, 
or the island Strombolicchio near Stromboli, Sicily. Okay. And they are taken as inspiration because they look very similar to what's in the painting. Yeah, listener, if you haven't seen the painting, it's probably a good idea to, like, Google it up real quick here. It's a very eerie, otherworldly kind of looking thing. Yeah. Now, the multiple versions of the painting happened by chance rather than by a artistic need. Okay. The second version... Uh, was created as a smaller version requested by a patron who saw the first version in progress. Uh, because of this patron's request, Bachlin would add um, the coffin in the boat and would make the figure standing in the boat a woman. Hmm. And these were to allude to the patron's uh, husband passing recently. Oh. The third version was made in 1883 for uh, Bachlin's art dealer. This version was actually later bought in 1933 by Hitler, who was a huge fan of Bachlin's. Yeah, I mean, people people forget Hitler was an art nerd. In 1884, the fourth version was made and put up for sale. Now, this version uh, was destroyed after a bombing attack on London during World War II, and now this version only survives as a black-and-white photo. In 1886, the fifth version was commissioned by the Leipzig Museum of Fine Arts, where it's still on display today. And then in 1901, the sixth version was produced by Arnold and his son, Carlo. <laughs> we're producing this f- painting for so long that we're getting the kids in. Well, like, because this is like the same year that he died. Oh. Um, <laughs> I see it more as like... Let's do this together. Maybe Carlo's helping him produce it. Maybe mm-hmm. he's trying to pass on what he knows to Carlo, and he's made this work so frequently that it's the easiest for him to reproduce. Yeah. Now, I, I should point out that in 1888, Bachlin produced a painting called Isle of Life, oh. which is kind of taken to be the opposite of Isle of the Dead. It still features a solitary island, but this time it's full of life, many trees, there's no stark cliffs. And there's animals and people in it. Kind of a pastoral look. Right. And all the versions are, like, a little bit different, right? Like, there's, there's like, not, little changes all through them. Not hugely. Like, the, the most notable one was the addition of the woman in the coffin. But, like, the one that he made for his art dealer in 83, the cliffs are kind of made to look a little bit more like they have have tombs inside them Mm. and the windows to those tombs uh kind of look like the art dealer's initials oh okay um but there's not really significant changes that would change meaning or anything so i didn't really go into anything like that yeah that's i I, yeah just sort of like these minor variations yeah they're not they're not strictly like exactly they're not strictly reproductions Mm mm-hmm it should also be noted that the title, Isle of the Dead, came from Buckland's art dealer in 1883, but was derived from a phrase Buckland used when first describing the painting. Okay. Um, and clearly he just kind of stuck with it because it's used again and again and even used as the inspiration for Isle of Life right. title. Um, now for myself, my f- after looking into Buckland's work, my favorite portrait of his is probably... Uh, from 1872, titled Self-Portrait with Death Playing the Fiddle. It's a picture, a portrait of himself, and Death, which just has, like, a skull head, 
and like a fiddle is like right behind him, like you know when someone's like right by your ear, right, just kind of whispering. In okay, there. yeah, I there's something about it that I I just really like. If you couldn't tell from our like a hundred and forty episodes or so of this horror movie podcast, Sarah's a little bit morbid. <laughs> Isle of the Dead is Bachman's most famous work and would go on to inspire other art, artists like Salvador Dali, literature, and music. Um, for example, which is kind of most relevant for us here, is the composer Sergei Rachmaninoff composed a what he described as a symphonic poem after seeing the black and white photo of the fourth iteration of Isle of the Dead. Okay. Famously, he actually said that, like, if I had seen the original with the color, I probably wouldn't be inspired to do this. I actually really like the black and white photo. <laughs> like a real snob. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, anyway, so he produced the symphonic poem in 1907, uh, also titling it I Love the Dead. And what's kind of neat is the rhythm of the song replicates the sound or the, the feeling of waves against a boat, oars in water, and also of someone breathing. Hmm. Creepy. In the song, the funerary Latin sequence Dies Irae is included. Right, which is your standard, a standard part of the Requiem Mass. Absolutely. Yeah. And I believe... Our film's composer for today uh, was influenced by Sergei here. Yes, and we can... Talk about that. Well, let's put a pin in that. Yes. For a minute. So, with all of that, I think it's easy to see how a painting like that would speak to Val Luton. Death is good, as he has said or at least imparted through his other works. Yeah. And I think, like, Bachland describes this painting as dreamlike. Mm -hmm. It's not nightmarish. No. It's not frightening. It's very melancholic and calm and serene. And that's honestly, like, a mood you can associate with... Luton. Yeah, exactly. Like, he makes movies that are very, like, elegiac, you know? Yeah. Yeah. With the script rewritten to accommodate the story's new focus, filming resumed following the completion of The Body Snatcher. With Rose Hobart having departed, Ellen Drew was now the top-billed actress in the cast. Born in 1915 as Esther Loretta Ray, she tried to get her start in Hollywood under the name Terry Ray. However, there was already an actor by that name, working in Hollywood. So, the two performers drew lots, and <laughs> she got to stay Terry Ray while he became Terry Rains. <laughs> However, when she went to Paramount in 1938, the studio changed her name to Ellen Drew anyway. Terry must have been furious. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> in 1944, she moved from Paramount to RKO, her career declined in the 1950s, and her final role was in 1960. She passed away in 2003 at age 88. We also have another appearance in this film from future Alfred Alan Napier, who we've seen previously in The Invisible Man Returns. 
Cat People and the Uninvited, and who had also appeared in Luton's period piece, Mademoiselle Fifi. Appearing in a minor role in this film is Jason Robards Sr., a prolific stage, screen, and television actor, who maybe today is most noteworthy as the father of Oscar-winning actor Jason Robards Jr., who you may know from films such as A Long Day's Journey Into Night, Once Upon a Time in the West, and All the President's Men. The cast also includes Luton regular Skelton Nags, who we first saw in Ghost Ship, and since then have seen in The Invisible Man's Revenge and The Picture of Dorian Gray. Yeah, he's like uh, like the waiter yeah, at the brothel. Yes. But he pops up every now and then in these movies. Mm-hmm. Finally, there is Jewish-Austrian actor Ernst Deutsch. Born in 1890 in Prague, Deutsch began acting on stage in 1914. In 1916, he moved to Germany and began acting in films, including as one of the rabbis in The Golem in 1920. Oh, shit. How old is he? He was born in 1890. So he's like 50? Yeah. The golem seems so long ago, Ben. <laughs> I was like, is he a hundred years old? How old is how old is he? He's the um like younger rabbi who kind of makes the golem go evil because he wants to get with the girl. Remember that? Yeah, 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 yeah. He left Germany in 1933 after the Nazis rose to power, and he came to the U.S. in 1938. He acted in a lot of Hollywood movies, usually as Nazis. Uh, and his best-known English film role is as Baron Kurtz in Carol Reed's The Third Man. Oh, shit. Nice. He's one of the two men. In The Third Man. Right. After the war, he moved back to Europe and continued his acclaimed stage career before passing away in 1969 in Berlin. N nice. <laughs> so... One of the strangest details to me of Isle of the Dead is, in fact, the music. Um, and that has more to do with just who was doing it. Okay. So once again, this was done by someone who hadn't worked for Luton before, someone new to the team. A composer at RKO named Leigh Harline, better known for his work for Walt Disney. Born in 1907 in Salt Lake City, Harline studied piano and organ with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. And that follows Salt Lake City. Mm -hmm. In 1928, he moved to L.A. and wrote music for radio programming. In the 1930s, he was hired by Disney to write music for the Silly Symphonies after Disney's original composer Carl Stalling jumped ship. Oh. Harline composed the score, but not the songs, for Snow White in 1937. And he then composed both score and songs for Pinocchio, including When You Wish Upon a Star, which is now the theme song of the company. For his work on Pinocchio, Harline won an Academy Award. He then expanded into live-action films at RKO, working up to his death in 1969 of throat cancer. 1969 just keeps popping up. Mm-hmm. Harline's score for Isle of the Dead, as you noted earlier, makes use of Sergei Rachmaninoff's 1907 tone poem, based on the painting. So filming on Isle of the Dead wrapped in December of 1944, after costing a total of 
$246,000, making it the most expensive Val Luton project thus far. The expense in this case largely due to the lengthy break in production and then having to get, you know, everyone back. And having to rewrite, so then presumably reshoots. Exactly. Yeah. It premiered on September 7th, 1945 in New York, before opening in L.A. and other urban centers later in the month. Unfortunately for Luton, the film made only $383,000 worldwide, uh, which is not a great profit margin on a movie that was your most costly so far. Like, it made its money back. Yes. But it didn't make a lot of money. Exactly. Now, luckily, The Body Snatcher, which had been released in May of 45, had been a box office hit. So Isle of the Dead's more modest success wasn't enough to tank the Luton-Karloff team. Today, Isle of the Dead is available on DVD from Warner Brothers in the Val Luton Horror Collection, or you can get it online at Apple Movies and Google Play, and it is currently streaming on the Criterion Channel, which is also streaming the rest of the Val Luton Horror Pictures currently. Yeah. Cool. Well, folks, uh, I really hope you can watch along. This is bound to be a very good treat, as with most Luton flicks. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Isle of the Dead from 1945, directed by Mark Robeson. See you on the other side, everybody. everyone to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Isle of the Dead from 1945, directed by Mark Robeson. Sarah, what'd you think? I feel like this movie took a lot out of me. Yeah, you seem very drained. Yeah, and I don't know if it's because I wasn't really sure what was going to happen next, Mm -hmm. or if it was just the way that it was able to control tension. Yeah, absolutely. I know you've been looking forward to this one for a long time. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I didn't realize, uh, how tense I was through the last 20 minutes or so of the movie until the movie was over. Yeah. And then, like, I, I untensed and I was like, oh. Yeah, I think it's really effective. Um, what did you think? Yeah, I thought this was incredible. I loved it. Um, let's talk about the story, which is very carefully crafted yes so i tried to like include the things that i thought were like specific Mm -hmm. enough that they mentioned um but i'm sure we'll go back and forth a bit yeah it's a hard movie to summarize i feel because it really feels like a story where every piece serves a purpose yeah um i will just mention that we see the painting isle of the dead underneath the opening credits, and the version that they use is the third version from 1883, which kind of makes sense. That's the first version that uh, was actually up for, I guess, general sale. Sure. The first one was a commission that he ended up keeping, and then the second one was a specific commission, so it kind of makes sense why they would go with that one. I think it's also the most well-known. 
right. version. But I will just remind folks that that is the version that was purchased by Hitler in 1933. <laughs> okay, yeah. And, like, I don't know if they would know this, but, like, yeah. just in case, because I know Luton's like that, I thought I would just put it out there. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like it would, it would be hard to know, like, but maybe. Yeah. Because 1933, that's before the war, so maybe mm-hmm. they were like... Hitler bought this painting. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, they advertise, like, when big paintings go on sale. Right. I don't know. Okay. The film opens with this piece of text talking about the Vorvalaka, which is another word for the Greek vampire Rikolakas, which mm-hmm. I mentioned in the opening, talking about how we don't believe in these myths anymore. I'm just kind of like leaving it out there. Right. I think it's it's really there. I mean, yes, it's there to kind of set a mood and set a tone, but I suspect it's really there to like inform American audiences that like there's this Greek myth called uh, the Vorvalica because otherwise people would just be like, I have no clue what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Very fair. The film begins with the first Balkan War in 1912 set in Greece. Now, um, I won't go into it now, and I we didn't go into it into the context setting, because the film doesn't really have anything to do with the Balkan Wars, um, because the time that the film is being set in is just like the beginning of it. But suffice to say that it sets the tone of a battle and dealing with death and, of course, disease. Mm-hmm. Um, Karloff has this great line about, like, Behind the war horse is the horse of pestilence or something. Yes. Karloff plays General Ferides, who is known as the watchdog of the army. Um, He kind of expects full obedience and accountability from his men. So we begin with seeing him have a... um, I wasn't sure of his rank, but he led basically a troop. um, And this man is uh, given a gun to be shot for basically running his troop poorly. They were late to bring in reinforcements. There is an American reporter, Oliver Davis, here as a war correspondent. Oliver and the general go to visit the nearby island called Isle of the Dead, which is a graveyard on an island, and they go basically to pay respects to the general's long-dead wife, um, and for the reporter for Oliver, it's a little bit of a tourism. Yeah, it's a break from battlefields and dead soldiers and uh, plague. Exactly. Or is it? Right. Once they arrive, they realize that the long-dead wife's crypt and the other crypts have actually been broken into with the bodies removed. Um, The general is, like, very upset by this, and he wants someone to pay and be punished for breaking this law. This is when they hear singing on what they thought was a like uninhabited island, so they follow it and get to this house, where they meet Swiss archaeologist Dr. Albrecht, his Greek housekeeper, Madame Kira, British diplomat Mr. St. Auburn, his wife Mary, her Greek nurse, Thea, and the English tinsmith, Andrew Robbins. <laughs> Bit of a cast of characters here. Yeah, they they wandered it like. <laughs> yes, the story for um, everyone except for Albrecht and Kira is they were basically taking shelter from the shelling that was going on on the mainland. I just love that, like the general and the reporter have like wandered into an already set up like old dark house, 
play, basically. Yeah, for sure. Um, so as I said, the others were taking shelter from the war here. Albrecht lives here as almost like a self-imposed penance for doing archaeological digs in Greece and hiring Greeks to dig up their own heritage and selling it and such. Um, and he's actually, he takes responsibility for the despoiling of the tombs on the island. Yeah, it's kind of like implied that once the Greeks realized that like, oh, artifacts have value, we can sell them to this archaeologist guy, they started just like... Digging up everything. Digging up everything, like grave robbing, like relatively recent non-mythical graves and being like, what about this? Yeah. Now, in a side conversation to the general, Kira, who is an older Greek woman, says that they actually burn the bodies because there's something evil in them. And it's here again as Thea. But the general laughs off this superstition and he and the reporter stay the night. During kind of like post-dinner drinks, um, the general meets Thea and Thea recognizes him as the general, the watchdog, and she refuses to pour him a drink. And she later tells the general that this is because of how harsh he was to his own people Mm -hmm. um, in collecting taxes. Think of it as like... People didn't want to pay taxes, so the landowners brought in the army. This general was the person leading the army and made them pay the taxes. So she's like, you fought your own people. I have no respect for you. Right, and the general justifies this by saying that if you stop following Greek law, you are no longer a Greek and thus not his own people. So what we have here is like lawful good versus chaotic good is, like, pretty much, like, the, the, the conflict that's set up here. Always with D&D. I see. I can't see anything through any other <laughs> lens now. The following morning, Robbins, uh, the tinsmith, he's dead from the septicemic plague. Uh, now, I, I'll just mention, uh, the septicemic plague is the rarest of the plagues. It uh, is like a blood infection. You might be more familiar with the bubonic plague, which is an infection of your lymph lymph nodes. Uh, And then there's also the pneumonic plague, which is focused on the lungs. But this is on the blood. The general brings in his army doctor, Dr. Drossus, uh, to identify the illness, and um, the doctor instills the strict regimen of hand-washing and no touching. Mm -hmm. and, And no gatherings. You know, we gotta kind of quarantine the island, obviously, but kind of keep each other separated as well. And he says that they just need to wait for the hot wind, the hot, dry Sirocco wind. And I'm sure that there's like a scientific explanation for it, but the way it's kind of explained is that the hot wind causes the fleas that spread the plague to die, and therefore, like, they will be safe. Yeah. The general implements these strict regimens, Um, but Albrecht says that. You know, these explanations, these scientific explanations for why we, or how we can stay safe from the plague, have just as much credence as Kira's claims that God has sent a plague to us for harboring a Vorvalaka. Which, my dude, that's some false equivalency here. Yeah, I mean, that was a jump, for sure. Yeah. But anyways, that's something that's going on here. Next to die is Mr. St. Auburn, poor Alfred. And he's to be buried immediately. And this really freaks out Mary, his wife. Um, And this is when she reveals to the doctor that she is cataleptic. Uh, So if she gets too excited or too stressed out, she will faint and appear dead. 
um, no heartbeat, no breathing, and she's very afraid of being buried alive. Mm -hmm. But when she tells the doctor, the doctor assures her, you know, I'll take every precaution, don't worry, um, and I won't, like, tell everyone else, like, it's fine. Because this is during the times of, like, well, we can't tell everyone else on this island that we're stuck here that... I might appear as if I'm dead. Yeah, probably the biggest mistake anyone makes in this movie is Mary's mistake of trying to keep her condition secret, which just feels like it doesn't serve a purpose, but I guess sort of makes sense in this like early 20th century era when like women's health was a very like hush-hush kind of thing, I guess. Yeah, I mean, health of anything. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so Dr. Dressus... Tells Mary, don't worry, it'll be fine. Except Dr. Jarsus is the next to die. Mm-hmm. Here's threats and accusations towards Thea, saying that she's the Vorvalica, are beginning to take their toll on Thea. The general is also now becoming convinced, and he vows to kill Thea when evidence is proven. Yeah, he's sort of like on the fence now, where it's like, well, you might be, you might not be, so I'm going to watch you every second in case you are. Yeah. I'm the watchdog, Thea. I watch. <laughs> right, exactly. And Kira gives... And then here I am being like, then who watches the watchdog, General? <laughs> <laughs> that was good. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and then Kira has some pretty interesting, convincing arguments for like why Thea, if she is the Vorvalica, might not even know that she's the Vorvalica. Yeah, because um, who knows what your thoughts, your spirit, get up to at night. Yeah. Yeah, which I there's nothing in what I read in my research about the Vrikolaka that would say, that, that would uphold what she's saying as this is the superstition around it. Now, maybe they did better research than I did. Maybe they're just making stuff up. I, I don't know. Yeah, I suspect that this is brought up, this idea of, like, what happens to you when you're asleep, because it ties into the wider, like, themes of the movie of, like, sleep to catalepsy, to death, forming this kind of, like, continuum. Yes. Yeah. Now, Oliver and Thea have been getting pretty close. Um, after the doctor died, everyone was like, well, not touching isn't solving anything, so I guess we can touch. <laughs> Thea and Oliver were like, touch, you say? Yeah. <laughs> Oliver is getting to the end of his rope with the general's threats to Thea, so he's like, we're going to leave. But then the general destroys the only boat, because... No one can leave the island. I have to cross over to the village. Today is market day. No one may leave the island. I must safeguard the health of my troops. I'm afraid you'll have to make an exception in my case, General. In my case and my wife's. I'm traveling on urgent business for my government. No one may leave. But my dear sir, His Majesty's government. No one may leave the island. General Ferides, I respect your concern and authority, but I must leave the island. There are personal reasons. I'll be glad to explain my wife's plight. No one may leave the island. But you must have observed that my wife is an invalid. The doctor will tell you what to do, and I will see that you do it. We will fight the plague. The stress of all of this uh, causes Mary to have a cataleptic episode. And just one scene before, she was like, Oh, yeah, Thea, don't worry, I'll tell Mr. Albrecht all about it. Yeah. (laughs) She didn't get around to that. Uh, Yeah, so they think she's dead, and they entomb her. Now, I say entomb, not bury, because what they do is they have these big boxes that the text on the sides of them 
say, like, archaeological finds or something. Mm -hmm. So just these boxes that Mr. Albrecht had lying around, they put the bodies in, nail it shut, and put them in the tombs. Mm -hmm. So she's not, like, buried, buried. The general is now convinced that Thea is a Vorvalica, but he himself succumbs to the illness, so he's not actually able to do anything. Now, the doctor, when he was going through, like, this is what this is, what it can cause, whatever, he mentions that for some people it can affect you, like, immediately. For some people it takes a little while. For some people you faint and you're dead. For some you go blind. And unfortunately for the general, he has gone blind. Now we get this scene, this slow camera movement up to the casket that Mary is in, and we hear her awaken, and there's this chilling scream. And obviously the tension's building up until this point, but it's at this point from the scream to the end of the movie that I think tension is the highest. Yeah. Because holy fuck is that scream just blood-curdling. Yeah. And you hear scratching from inside the casket. Mm -hmm. It's holy moly. Um, I don't have a fear of being buried alive, no. but I kind of do now. Like, <laughs> gosh... No one hears the scream, um, unfortunately. Uh, and as we keep cutting back to the plot and then back to the casket, um, we see water dripping down onto the casket, allowing the wood to be pliable enough for Mary to get out. Kira hears the struggle, hears the pushing of the plywood, um, but she takes this as evidence that the Vorvalaka has created a second one. Thea has turned Mary and urges the general to do something to protect them. Mary is now, for lack of a better word, haunting the island. It's almost like she's gone a little mad, which I wouldn't blame her for, like, her greatest fear coming true mm -hmm. and being stuck there for hours. Yeah, when she leaves the tomb, she's, like, muttering something about, like, they, they shut me away in the dark or something. Like, yeah. she's clearly very upset. <laughs> yes. Um, so she is in a long, flowy gown, uh, heavily inspired by Vera West, I'm sure, and is, like, humming through the island, and she makes it back to the house. Before she does, um, we see that Kira's gone to bed, the general's fallen asleep, Sophia is out uh, taking in the night air, Albrecht and Davis, Oliver, Oliver Davis, the reporter, um, are going over some of his finds, and they're talking about a particular trident, this Greek trident. Oliver and Thea go out into the wilderness. Um, Oliver goes after Thea, looking for her. And uh, Albrecht falls asleep. And this is when Mary comes in. She picks up the trident and goes upstairs. Now, the kind of room arrangements are such that Kira shares a room with Thea, and the adjoining room is where Mary slept. And Mary goes up and stabs Kira in the throat and then hides away. And then Thea comes up. She's getting ready for bed. Nothing is happening. The general wakes up enough to hear that Thea has gone up. And this is when we realize that he's blind because he's shuffling around. He makes it upstairs and he reaches Kira's body, feels the blood at her throat, and to him is like, the Vorvalaka... It got to you. Yeah, like, because it, it's, it's, her throat is punctured, right? Yeah. Like, it's... Yeah. And Thea screams, he lunges for her, and that's when Mary comes out, stabs the general, and then flees into the night. 
Albrecht and Oliver go to follow Mary to try to, like, basically catch her and bring her back to sanity, but she runs off a cliff. The code said she could not be redeemed. <laughs> they make it back to the house to see the general kind of dying. Karloff is, like, bleeding and crawling on the floor. It's quite eerie, but I'm sure if, like, I wasn't so tense at this point, I would laugh a little. And he's like, the Vorvalaka, I've seen it, like, I know it's here. And Albrecht says, it's okay, we've dealt with it. Kind of as, like, a bit of a eulogy, Albrecht says, as the general dies, that he was simply a man trying to protect us. Mm -hmm. um, and that's basically the end. We get, like, a little bit of some footage of... Everybody gets off the island. Yeah, yeah, Albrecht, well, Albrecht stays, but Albrecht, uh, Oliver, and Thea survive the plague. Mm-hmm. I feel like this movie, in Luton fashion, is dealing with some larger themes. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know how we want to talk about those. Um, I mean, I think we just need to, like, pick what elements we want to talk about and then talk about them, you know? For sure. So I think one of those themes is that Obviously, with superstition, it's kind of dealing with directly. Mm -hmm. um, I thought it was interesting how it opens with this, like, text saying, like, hey, some people believe the superstition. And then when we meet Kira saying, like, there's a vampire here, mm -hmm. it was very reminiscent of Dracula. Yeah. And people being like, vampires. And everyone being like, that's old country bullshit. Yeah. And it kind of still is yes. in this movie. So that's the thing. The first thing I really noticed about this movie is that I think the script is supremely intelligent. Yes. It's this excellent exploration of how superstitions persist. And almost fester yeah. to become infections. Exactly. Like, it's the Val Luton vampire movie is what it is. But, yeah. like, in true Val Luton fashion, it's not like any other vampire movie. And it's this wonderful dramatization of the vampire story that uses, you know, Luton's traditional ambiguity of, like, is there or isn't there, right? Even Thea herself right. isn't sure if she is or is not. And it shows you how you could maybe believe that you were a vampire without knowing it, which is wonderful. It reconnects vampires with disease, which was mm -hmm. the myth's, you know, original source, as we've talked about, mm -hmm. that has kind of become completely... Um, disconnected. Yeah, just completely disconnected in the current, like, Hollywood vampire scene of the 1940s. Yeah, um, which, like, if they aren't sexy, like original Dracula, they are just another monster. Right, exactly. And it also sort of presents, like, a thoroughly modern version of that story that is still terrifying, but giving rational explanations for everything. Um, and it shows you how rational people can turn to superstition because yeah, Kira's the like, Oh, the old wives tale, like old woman. But like the general starts as like an atheist even, right? Like they all pray to God at one point and he stays out of it. And he's like, I only believe what I can feel and touch and see. Right. And he gets turned over to this superstitious belief. Mm -hmm. And the thing I really like that's very rare in horror movies and you have to kind of forgive in horror movies a lot of the time because, Hey, that's just how the stories work. But this movie shows you how 
dangerous and how much harm superstitions do. Like, the problem a lot of time with horror movies is that you can't say that superstitions are bad and terrible because, you know, vampires need to exist for you to have a story, so that means the superstitious people were right. But here, like, everything that Kira and the General managed to do just makes things worse at every turn. Yeah. You know, as the superstition turns into fear and then into hatred. Like, at one point... Um, it's when um, Mary has fainted and Thea, who knows that she gets cataleptic, it has locked both her and Mary in the room um, to try to wait it out. And throughout the entire night, Kira's at the side of the door, like, taunting her, like... Um, I know what you are. I've nailed a cross to the other side of this door. What you're going to do now, Vorvalaka, is basically the tone of it. Yes. Yeah, and that drives Thea, like, up the wall. Yes, exactly. I think that's also why I found myself getting really tense, because I've always struggled with that whole postmodern idea of, like, it's just your perspective, and, like... Nothing is fully true, therefore everything is true. Right. And I think that has done so much harm Mm -hmm. to the world. I don't want to get on a soapbox, but I've always just having to deal with what that means in this world has always been very difficult for me. Um, And I remember this one time in grad school, I just, I mean, my cohort and I, we were quite all close. Um, And I was in this class on theory. And it was me and, like, three or four of my classmates and the prof. And I, we were dealing with postmodern stuff. And I broke down crying because it was like, no, like, people are cruel. People aren't always right. It's not a matter of their perspective. Mm-hmm. But then I would get stuck with, like, but what if in their perspective I'm the mean one? And finally the prof had to be like, no, Sarah, like, people... Or who they are. There's n- it's not a matter of perspective. There's right and wrong in this world. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that the postmodernists who came up with those theories, like, they wanted them to be used in such a way as to say, like, hey, everything's made up anyways. Like, like stop freaking out about, you know, this grammar or this version of Christianity versus that. Because we all, these are all things we've made up. So they're all kind of equally valid. But I don't think they meant that to be taken to the spot we're at now, where it's like, oh, in order to respect people, everyone's opinions have to be treated as right. This anti-vaxxer and this pro-vaxxer are, are the same. They're, they're just as right as each other. Yes. It's like, mm. The superstition from Kira has just as much credence as the science from the doctor. Yeah. Mm, does it, though? And ultimately... What all of this leads to for Kira and the General is they are the ones who are targeted when, like, Revenant Mary comes to call, right? Yes. Like, she's mad with madness, but, like, she's she's not going after anyone else. She is going after the people who harassed Thea. Yes. And I think it's very important to acknowledge that she's doing so with a Triton which was a Greek archaeological artifact that Abrecht had, like, just been showing off. Mm-hmm. And she kills two of the three Greek characters. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, you have to suspend disbelief a bit with Karloff. 
being Greek. I mean, it's one of those movies where, <laughs> you know, they indulge in that old-fashioned Hollywood thing where everyone's just talking with whatever their natural accent is, and we have to be kind of told what their ethnicities are, because I think the only people... Like the doctor? Isn't the doctor the German? Yeah, so so Karloff is English, playing Greek. Ernst Deutsch is Austrian, playing Greek. Um, the actress playing Kira, Helen Thymig, is Austrian, playing Greek. Um, you know, Ellen Drew, that's American, playing Greek. Then we've got the reporter from Boston. Now, that's American playing American. Yeah. Then and then we, we have Skelton Nags. Skelton Nags, yeah, playing this, like... <laughs> very, like, Cockney British. Yes. Um, <laughs> Alan Napier is British playing British, so that's our second of, like, two people whose ethnicities match. Um, the actress playing Mary, uh, Catherine Emery, that's American playing British. And then you've got all... To be fair, we don't know if she's actually British. That's She's fair. just married to a British person. And then we've got Albrecht, where it's Jason Robards, so American playing Swedish. Yes. Like, it's all over the place. I also think it's important to talk about the general um, and his focus on the rule of law. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not quite so much as, like, Odo from Deep Space Nine being into justice. It's more like, you broke the law, so you are bad. You are yes. no longer Greek, as we've said. Yeah, that's um, why I brought up the lawful good thing, where it's like, the law is your arbiter of what is good and evil. Yeah, and Thea says something that, like, I can't remember the f- quote fully, but it's along the lines of, like, you know that phrase that's like, if you follow an unjust law, you become unjust? Mm-hmm. That's basically th- what Thea tells the general. Um, and the general is very much someone who's who believes that the end justifies the means. Mm-hmm. Um, like when we are even first introduced to him, um, so he's overworking his soldiers. They've just fought a huge long battle, but now immediately after they have to continue working and collect the dead. And Oliver's like, well, why don't you have the horse pulling the cart? And he's like, no, the horse doesn't know what it's doing for its country. The men know that they're doing this for the country. And I get that the idea is to inspire your men, General, but they're going to be tired for the battle tomorrow. Well, it's it's definitely the ends justify the means thing, because the idea is that you cannot push an animal past its breaking point, because it's just an animal. You can push men past their breaking point by motivating them with, you know, fear or patriotism or whatever, right? So yeah. you can work a man harder than you can work an animal. Yeah, that's that's basically his rationale there. And I think, like, you know, it's 1945, and Greece is... What, where, where's Greece in World War II at this time? Greece is a... Well, I mean, World War II's over because it's September. Yeah. But when this was being shot in, like, summer-slash-December of 1944, the war was still on... Greece in World War II is a fucking mess. Yeah. Like, because it's, it's sometimes allies, sometimes Axis. It's got rebels who are fighting, and sometimes those rebels are on one side or the other. Like, it's just this huge internal mess, which is, you know, kind of the same situation Romania was in, where, like, Romania was switching sides depending on which coup had taken over most <laughs> recently. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like, I think... I think Greece was kind of a little all over the place. I do think officially they might have started out as Axis, but they definitely changed sides. Okay. Yeah, so I don't know if Luton's saying anything about, like, Greece 
in his contemporary times, like he was with Mademoiselle Fifi and Prussia being German and France being occupied France. But I think he is saying something about tyrants and he is saying something about how easy it is to like rationalize hatred and persecution. Yes. And I think things, you know, I think here the themes are more broad because it's not necessarily about World War II. Like, this movie is applicable to war in general. Yes. Right? Like, it's it's telling you something about war. It's telling you something about death. Like, the thing I really like is that on top of all the terror, the story has something to say about the human condition mm-hmm. and talks about, like, the way that people are, you know? And, yeah, I think other than the superstition versus science theme, the other big theme, of course, is death, which... You know, has been a topic that Luton has returned to again and again. Yes. But here, I think it's the most prominent, because in this movie, it's the primary driving antagonistic force, right? It's the it's the thing that the characters are battling against directly. Like, at a certain point, Oliver realizes that the general views his purpose as to battle against death you know, whether it's on the island fighting the plague or whether it's in the war trying to keep his men alive by holding death back, he views, like, death as his enemy. And so does um the doctor who he brings in, Dr. Drossus, who talks, like, when he gets the plague and he's going to die from it, he talks about how death is an old enemy and, you know, he has won against it many times and this time uh, he has not, right? Yeah. Um, everyone in this movie is battling against death except... Mary. Right. She explicitly says, I'm not afraid to die. But earlier she says that her only fear is being buried alive. Exactly. And that fear, of course, becomes horrifically true. And, yeah, so I think part of that about Mary saying, like, I'm not afraid to die. What I'm afraid of is, essentially, I'm afraid of being alive, but being trapped, right? Being mistaken for dead. Yeah. And then I think that plays a lot into her suicide at the end of the movie. Um, you know, you're probably onto something with it being a code thing, but the but fact... But she does kind of run, look behind her, and then run off the cliff. Yeah, like, she isn't afraid to die. Mm-hmm. And she's also gone very mad by the end of the movie. But yeah, she's not afraid of death. She she runs to it, you know? That's interesting, actually. She's afraid of that blurred line. Mm-hmm. And all throughout this movie, we're seeing blurred lines... Mm-hmm. Of it all. Of, like, the truth and science and superstition. Yeah, and it's why the movie brings up that idea of, like, the liminal state, where it's like, well... You're... What happens when you're asleep? Right, because your consciousness is turned off, right? Like, your consciousness turns off for, like, a third of the day every day, and what's the deal with that, right? <laughs> um, you know, and what's the difference between being asleep versus being cataleptic versus... Being dead. Being dead. And where does your where does your spirit go? And I can tell you from being someone who sleeps and also has had fainting spells. Oh, yes. Um, someone, like, I have a history of unexplained random fainting spells. And you just think you're asleep. It feels exactly like being in a super deep dream. So, mm-hmm. who knows what death is like? Oh, Hamlet was right all along. <laughs> The entire cast here is really excellent. Karloff gives an incredible performance. I've never seen him like this here. I think he's enjoying that he's not a villain, 
per se. He's not a monster. It's another role that lets him sort of play with the hero-villain dichotomy that lets him be charming and menacing, which seems to be a sweet spot for him. But in, like, The Body Snatcher, his character there is, like, relishing in that power Mm -hmm. that he has um, and in being cruel, whereas the general almost seems like he doesn't enjoy it. He sees it as, like, a thing he has to do to protect people. Yes, I Almost think, like he's being crushed under the weight of the responsibility. Yeah, it's a role that gives Karloff a lot to chew on. Yes. Um, but I think even our like generic romantic male lead, uh, Mark Kramer, isn't bad. The movie felt like the ensemble of a play. Where... It really did, especially because we're like just on this island. Yes, yeah. so it's the limited setting of a play, right? And so this ensemble is like a you know rising tide raises all boats kind of thing. The women are especially good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ellen Drew as Thea and Helen Thymig as Kira are both very effective. But for my money, Catherine Emery gives a performance as Mary that, like, if you see this movie, you will remember it for the rest of your life. Yeah. Which makes it utterly shocking that this is her second film of only 12 screen appearances in her career. One thing that I found very admirable about this movie that you just do not see in film anymore is that it allows everything to ramp up slowly. Mm-hmm. It's not trying to scare you every minute. Uh, in fact, it's more of a drama film than a horror movie for a long time. But that's because it's taking its time to like methodically put every piece in the place it needs to be so that once the horror begins, the audience is totally clear on what is going on and why it is happening, and all of the characters are where they need to be for the actions they take to ring true. Like, nothing that anybody does feels like, oh, no one would do that in that situation, because the movie has very carefully poked and prodded everyone's psychologies to get them where they need to be so that that last 20 minutes of the movie works. Yes. Uh, Nothing in this movie comes out of left field. I would agree with that. Um, another thing I want to talk about is how incredible the cinematography is in this movie. Yeah, for sure. Now, it's it's certainly the usual Luton, like, light and shadow, high contrast look, but there's, like, a specific element of the cinematography that really wowed me in a film from 1945, which is that Jack McKenzie manages to pull off the hereditary barely see him in the dark trick in black and white in 1945, which was a time when those kind of shots would have been considered, like, wrong, like mistakes, because it was a, you know, you're in an era where the prevailing school of wisdom in cinematography is built on lighting people for exposure, lighting things so that the audience can see everything clearly, and as a secondary priority, making sure all the actors look good. Like, that's your job. And what's even more incredible about this, because he... He pulls off this trick where they've got Mary in this white dress in the shadows, and you can barely see her. Just Mm -hmm. barely. And the fact that she's in white is what's letting you barely see her, but even then it's barely. And what's incredible about managing to get her barely there is that finding the exact lighting, shutter speed, and f-stop to make that happen would have had to have been done solely by light meter, math, and confidence. (laughs) Because... Even if you're looking through the viewfinder on a on the camera, 
a film camera viewfinder is just showing you framing. It can't show you what the film is exposing or not. And with no video playback on set, you only really know what you shot once you see rushes the next day. Yeah, he did an incredible job. It's very spooky. There were times where I thought my eyes were playing tricks on me, and then she fucking jumps out. Man. Yeah, yeah. I was like, <laughs> I, yeah, I was like, did I see something there, or did the film just kind of have like a weird, a weird error? Flicker. Yeah, and it's like, nope. <laughs> yeah, cinematographers in those days had to be master craftsmen because there was no margin for error like you have now with digital, and every take that you don't use because it didn't work, is money that you have thrown in the trash because every foot of film is expensive. Yes. Also, in terms of the production, once again, we have incredible sound design. Yes. Uh, Maybe the best yet in a Luton film. I don't know about the best yet. It is still very good. The use of sort of space and direction and echo to create, like, depth and dimensionality and a sense of place was really extraordinary. Not to mention how well the sound delivers on mood and on telling the story. So, yeah, so I loved it. Uh, let's rank. Sounds great. Okay. So where were you looking? Let me let me give a caveat here. Okay. So, obviously, after we watch a movie, we break, someone writes the synopsis, and then we write our notes and stuff. And I I did my ranking, and then as we were talking, I started to actually feel... Relief, and that's when I realized how tense I was. <laughs> um, and so I don't know if this ranking is accurate anymore, but this is where I was thinking. Yeah, absolutely. I started looking at the body snatcher because that's right. the last one, the last Karloff one too. So yeah. That's, yeah, makes sense. So that's at number eleven, and I enjoyed the body snatcher more than this. So I went down the list, and I figured that you know the lowest I would ever put this is by Seventh Victim at number 27. Now, the highest I would put this is kind of a grab bag, but I kind of settled along the lines between Karuta Ichipeji at 21. Um, That was the very, like, expressionist Japanese film, um, which also kind of ramped up tension. But I also feel like this could potentially go below Fairman Maria at 16. So, kind of all over the place, but to kind of solidify that, so that's 16 to 27. Hmm. Where were you looking? So, I did the same thing as you. I started with The Body Snatcher. But I liked this better than The Body Snatcher. Okay. So, I went up from there. So, my range is actually the bottom of the top 10. Um, I don't think this is better than I Walked with a Zombie, but it might be better for me than Phantom Carriage. And I thought it was I thought it was definitely better than Son of Frankenstein, but I wasn't sure if it was better than Picture of Dorian Gray. So I kind of thought that the highest I would put this is five and the lowest I would put this is ten. So See, that makes sense to me. I think like like I said, it took me a while to come off the tension and kind of realize how tense I was. I it was definitely tense after the scream. Yeah. And then I think because I was so on edge I had a hard time like keeping up with the movie. Mm. Because I was so, like, in shock, I guess. The thing about this versus The Body Snatcher is that The Body Snatcher is a lot of fun and is very good and is very enjoyable to watch. But this movie actually, like, had me, you know, on the edge of my seat, as it were, right? Like, actually had me kind of terrified by the end of it, which is kind of rare for these older movies. 
That's fair, and I think comparing it with Phantom Carriage is really good, because Phantom Carriage is a trial to yeah, get through. It's also a very intense movie about death. Yeah, and this movie also is, like, like not in the same way, but it is, like, I guess what I mean is, like, the dread is still there yeah. in, in both. So, yeah, okay, I can get behind your range, but what do you, th- like... I see what you mean about Son of Frankenstein, but Picture of Dorian Gray, or The Invisible Man. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's better than those. You know, that's why that was my floor was that, right? Yeah, I Um, think, like, even looking at The Black Cat, the way that that movie is able to bring in the history of where it's set. Yes. And this... It's more of a backdrop than anything. yeah. Yeah. So I think that I would put this below The Black Cat... And above Son of Frankenstein. So I've narrowed the range a bit. Still 7 to 10, though. So I think I'm okay with putting this below Dorian Gray, which is just on a craft level so excellent. Um, Fair enough. So... I mean, also just looking... Like, they had, like, the money to spend. Oh, sure. Absolutely. So I think I'm okay with putting this at number 10 and slotting a new movie into the top 10 the day before Halloween, right under the wire. Nice. Love it. Okay, so entering the list at number 10, Isle of the Dead from 1945, directed by Mark Robeson. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to appeal this or any other ranking, you can submit through our ask box there. You can reach us uh, through email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and SoundCloud. You can subscribe to the show through our RSS feed and listen to us on whatever podcatcher app you prefer. If you listen to us on a service that lets you leave a rating or a review, we would really appreciate you doing that because it helps the algorithms on those programs suggest the show to more listeners. Or you could cut out the middleman and just suggest it to other listeners yourself, uh, whether that's on social media or around the water cooler. We it, this feels like it's been a very exciting episode, so maybe you can just you know recommend this one to uh, to dive right in. Another way that you can help support the show is by heading over to our Patreon, Patreon.com/ScreamScenePodcast, where, as we alluded to at the top of the show, patrons of all levels get access to our special October Halloween content which tomorrow coming out is the conclusion of Carmilla and our special scream scene unsolved (laughs) on the mysterious life and mysterious or death of Vera West. So once again, that's patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. And you know, it's the day before Halloween. This is the perfect time to share an episode, especially an episode like this. Exactly. Uh, What are we watching next week, Ben? Do you think it's as like revolutionizing? Almost guaranteed not. Um, do you remember when we watched The Vampire's Ghost, and I said that it was part of a double feature, but that I couldn't find the other part of that double feature anywhere? Yes. So an anonymous listener sent us the other part of the double feature. Oh, nice. Uh, So we're going to be able to watch The Phantom Speaks next week, which is looking like it's probably just another, like, a criminal gave me a part of his body, so now I'm a criminal kind of movie. Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe it's, like, because the phantom speaks, so maybe, like, the phantom of the opera comes back? Maybe it's his tongue that's being transplanted? Maybe. That's something. That's something, Ben. 
Either way, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye! Bye! Bye!